Our Bible reading this morning is from Acts chapter 6, looking at verse 1 to 7. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. This is God's word. Ali, thank you. Nothing, um, nothing feels a reader like dread, like a list of names. Uh, so uh, thank you for... Uh, bringing us that reading. And uh, if we've not met, my name's Matt Fuller. Be lovely to do so afterwards. Uh, you join us, if you do so today, uh, we're in the book of Acts, have been this term. Uh, this is our last look uh, uh, at the book of Acts before um, we take a break for more uh, seasonal things. We'll return uh, at some point in the new year. But let me, um, let me lead us in prayer as we begin. Our Father, our prayer will be very much that we would see what they saw 2,000 years ago, that the word of God spread and the number of disciples in our city, in our nation, in our world increased rapidly. Father, we would love to see that. So help us understand uh, what you're saying to us here by your spirit. So we would live in obedience to you. And if you would be kind to us, we would see this sort of growth in your church. Amen. Well, I wonder what to your mind is the greatest threat to the church. Uh, if you read the media, it's probably sort of aging churches or, or doolally vicars, and I'm sure that's true. Uh, and then some part of that. Uh, in some parts of the world, I guess the greatest threat is, is, is brutal suppression, violence. In other parts of the world, I guess it's materialistic comfort that the church just dissipates in a life of ease and forgets what's important. But undoubtedly, when Luke gets to the end of his first section, and that's where we're at in, uh, in the book of Acts here, he wants to warn us against distraction. Don't let that prevent the word of God from spreading. That's how he ends this chapter of his book. Uh, the book of Acts has sort of six sections to it. They're there at the bottom there. I've scribbled them down. You get these summaries of growth in 6, 7, 9, 31, and those other uh, references. Ah, chapter and verses, we don't get them until... About the 16th century is probably where we get our current chapters and verses. So for Luke and the original readers, that was the chapter divisions, this phrase, the word of God spread and the church grew. Those are the chapter headings. So chapter one, Luke finishes with this little story. The word of God spreads at the end of it. And that for Luke is not the whole Bible per se. The word of God for Luke is the gospel message about Jesus. And again, that's defined on those references I've scribbled down if you want to chase that. Now, if you've been with us over the last few weeks, we've seen 
persecution. The apostles on trial in prison, but that didn't stop the word of God spreading. We've seen corruption. Ananias and Sapphira lying about issues of money, but that has not stopped the word of God from spreading. And so here, the last account or a story that Luke gives us before ending chapter 1 is, well, boy, be wary of distraction. But here, that does not prevent the word of God from spreading. And you can tell that's the issue, just, you know, um, three times this little, just seven verses. The issue is the word of God. So verse 2, the the apostles say, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God. Verse 4, so what we're going to do is give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. And the conclusion of all this is, verse 7, the word of God spread and the number of disciples increased. That's the issue. So crucial to the health of this early church in any church is that this word of God, this message of Jesus is effectively proclaimed. So you may have, you may have read it's read, you might think not enormously exciting to read about a church meeting where they vote about new, appointing new officers and, uh, and the like, but I'd suggest it's highly contemporary because we want to make sure that the word of God spreads and that the church grows. And so we need to understand how that happens. We look at it this way, there's two problems. There's two ways to serve, and there's one outcome. Very simple. Two problems, two ways to serve, one outcome. Let's look at the problems then. You get two problems, and that's in verses 1 and 2. I'll be reading again verses 1 and 2. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Well, let's pause there, actually. Problem one. Okay, there's two problems. Problem one, there's division in the church. So these two groups, Hellenistic and Hebraic Jews, what's the difference? They're both Jews, you get that. They're probably all the same race. They're probably all the same ethnically. But one group are Hebraic, based in the homeland, Jerusalem. Others have probably ventured further away. And they're Hellenistic, that is, their primary language is Greek. And their customs are Greek. But probably, ethnically, you wouldn't have, to just look at them, have noticed the difference, probably. But you'd have heard them talking different languages, and they had slightly different customs. What are the details? Don't know. But the little footnote there is, uh, it tells you all you need to know, really. There's Jews, the, the Hellenistic Jews, the Jews who have adopted Greek language and culture. The problem then is that there's division. Now, let me break it down a little bit. I guess the first presenting issue is, is money or food. So uh, we're told that widows were being overlooked because they were Greek-based Jews, Hellenistic Jews. Now, that is a problem. I mean, in one sense, it's a scandal that just on the basis of culture, one group gets treated and gets the poor relief, and another group does not. That is significant. It needs addressing. Any church should have an active concern for its its members and their social needs and not distinguish or, or discriminate on the grounds of race or culture. So this is a big issue. The presenting issue, money then, but second, I guess if you push a bit further, it is a a racial or a cultural problem. 
We're not told if it's deliberate or in the language of the 21st century, it's unconscious bias. But there is an issue here. And you'd be naive to not recognize that this is a timeless issue. Because Christians and churches in every part of the world and in every generation need to not be naive. Actually, we can, cultural differences can be a threat to the unity we have in Jesus Christ. So I look around at Christchurch Mayfair, and I don't think to my mind there are obvious problems culturally or racially. But we'd be naive, wouldn't we, not to observe that probably, particularly in this congregation, perhaps less so in the evening, one race is more prevalent than others, and therefore to assume that's normative will be a disaster. I don't think we've got any great problems amongst us. And yet, you know, struck fairly recently one couple who'd just been here a while and loved CCM and are thoroughly involved and utterly servant-hearted. They're from East Asia and did observe. It took us longer than we expected to sort of break into groups. And in any group culture, the temptation to mainly or overwhelmingly associate with PLUs, with people like us, is a strong one. It's not thought through, it's not deliberate, but we may just drift into it. You just can't be naive on that. I don't think it's a big issue here. I think perhaps more, more, more likely is a sort of cultural, uh, a little cultural difference in the sense of, so one or two have said, uh, I don't really fit at Christchurch Mayfair. Oh, why is that? Uh, well, just the way I dress. Um, you know, it's just a bit different to most people and occasionally someone will say, oh, you've got another crazy shirt on, you've got another crazy whatever it is. Um, no, just not middle class standard perhaps. Um, not whatever the shops are that we tend to frequent. Uh, but in other parts of London or the country it would be pretty standard. Uh, why do you keep commenting on that? It's just always the danger, isn't there, that we assume that our culture, we assume that our culture is the normative one, uh, and anyone who dresses differently, looks a bit differently, is, oh, you're interesting, aren't you? Um, well, that can make people feel a little excluded. I think it's much less likely racially, perhaps more likely culturally, at a church such as ours. So we just want to be, don't want to be naive. Uh, it's a challenge that every church has to work at, I think. Um, so there's a money problem, there's a sort of racial or cultural problem more, more pertinently, I think, here. And then the third little element of this division is there's complaining. So verse 1, uh, some people complained against the Hebraic Jews. Now, I need to be a bit careful. There's a genuine grievance here. There is a, a, an unethical failure to care for one group. And yet the word used for complaining is not a neutral word. It's a word, technically. Um, so it's the same word in the, in the Old Testament that when the Israelites complained against the leadership of Moses, they complained. In the New Testament, the only people described as complaining are the Pharisees when they don't like Jesus. 
So it's not a neutral word. It's not a, excuse me, apostles, I think, I think something's going on which is not quite right. You might want to have a look at this. It's not that. It's a, and spreading of, uh, of sort of badness. That's a, that's a terrible phrase. I can't believe I've even said that. Uh, spreading of um, sort of maliciousness and, and, and malcontent uh, amongst the church. So you see how this is all built up. Here's problem one, division. I remember I couldn't find it to my annoyance. I'm, I'm sure I filed it and I'll probably find it on Monday. But a few years ago I filed something, I read an article, Seven Steps to Destroy a Church. And uh, it's not, it's a tongue-in-cheek article obviously, it's not genuinely advocating these, just to be clear. Um, I couldn't find it, but it went something like this. Step one, develop a complaint and let it fester before you do anything else. Step two, share with others a prayer request. Say, I don't want to complain, but can you come pray about this really bad thing that the church is doing? Don't, you know, that's step two. So you just share it with a slightly smaller group. Step three, once you've shared, sort of disseminate a bit more widely. See how others feel. Whatever you do, don't go to the leadership. But just disseminate the problem a little more widely would be a good thing to do. Uh, and then uh, step four, uh, don't actually speak to the church leadership. You must never do that about your problems or complaints until step four, you've persuaded nearly half the church that your grievance is a really important one. And only then present a sort of public delegation. Uh, and those are the steps to divide your church. Don't do that. That is, not a, that, is not a, that is not a positive endorsement. That is not a thing to do. He's saying, ha, 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 wouldn't it be silly if churches acted like this? Oh, sometimes they do. Okay. So there's division within the church. That's problem one. There's neglect. It's a real issue. It's culturally based and this complaining that grows up. That's a real problem. Problem two, I think, is distraction for the apostles. So verse two. So the 12, the apostles, they gathered all the disciples, about 5,000 together. This is quite a big meeting. Uh, all, they gathered them all together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. So the fact that they state that, it clearly seems to be that some had suggested that's the right, right way forward. Some had suggested, look, our, our, our widows... Uh, us Greek lot, our widows are being neglected. So can you, the apostles, because we trust you, can you sort this out? Can you come and distribute the food on a daily basis to make sure we all get the right amount? And the apostles say, verse 2, that would not be right. I can see there's a problem. We can see there's a problem. But your solution, that's not right. That would be another problem. And in fact, the way Luke tells his story here in these seven verses, that is the main problem. Because if the church is to grow, the word of God has to be proclaimed so that the church can spread. This is the one that Luke highlights. Right? Two problems. Neglect of the widows and complaining. There's division. And secondly, there's the threat of distraction. So those are the two problems. Two ways to serve them. Here's the, uh, here's the suggestion that comes out of it. Verses 3 and 4. Two ways to serve. So verse 3. The, the apostles say, Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom, 
and we will turn this ministry over to them. Sorry, this responsibility over to them. And we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Two ways to serve. Let me try and explain. The same word gets used in verse 2. Wait on tables. Diakonia is the same word as verse 4, ministry of the word. Diakonia. Same word. You either, they're saying, some people need to serve the tables. It's not right that we do that. We need to serve the word. Same phrase, same word. There are two different ways of serving. Now, some people clearly need to sort out the widows and, and take care of them. And so he says, look, appoint seven people, and, and the bar is set pretty high. So there are three criteria uh, if you're going to be one of those um, serving the, the widows, sorting out the poor relief. Uh, verse 3, choose seven men among you uh, who are known. That's the first criteria. It's literally those who are of good repute. It's the same phrase as 1 Timothy 3, that you have to have an elder. You need to be of good repute, be beyond reproach. Same word. They need to be known in that sense. You can't have anyone doing this, serving as a, a deacon in charge of the poor relief. You can't have anyone that the church goes, huh? Why them? You can't, they need to be recognized uh, as beyond repute, of good repute. Uh, secondly, they need to be full of the Spirit, Godly, and in the flow of Acts, that's just a a boldness as well as a sort of general godliness. And thirdly, you need need to be full of wisdom. In practical matters, you need people who are shrewd, who can sort problems, who are wise. You need lots of Solomon type figures in one sense, godly thought. Now, look, there's no thought here or no hint that the apostles thought that serving on tables was beneath them, but they thought that serving with the word of God was the thing they ought to be doing. But do you see that the standard is pretty high for those sorting out the poor? Got to be beyond reproach, just like an elder is. Got to be godly, got to be shrewd, got to be wise, got to be careful. And the first two, when you get to the list, Stephen, well, he's the first martyr, we'll see in chapter 7. Philip, he's the first evangelist uh, outside of the Jews. These are the top guys, as it were. Those who serve in this way are the best of the early church. But do you see the principle? This is the key thing at stake. People in the church are called to serve in different ways. Some need to be serving the ministry of the word. Others serving, in this case, in poor relief, sorting out the widows. But there needs to be delegation, division of labor here. Let me comment briefly on um, this ministry of caring for the widows. Uh, It is terrific that there's a small group uh, of deacons, we call them, uh, here at church at CCM who specifically do this. I think that group is probably too small, a little overloaded. We need to look to expand it. But again, it's very obvious from Acts chapter 6 that it needs maturity, it needs wisdom. But the principle is there needs to be delegation. And so I, in one sense, I'd want to say for myself as one of those involved in the ministry of the word and prayer, 
I am very grateful to be in a church where people recognize this uh, and recognize that I certainly can't be responsible for administering all the finances and I can't be responsible for ensuring that this person is genuinely in need and not just sort of making a, a slightly feeble claim because their student grant has run out a week early. You know, I, I can't get into these details. That's recognized. And obviously I can't visit every person who's sick in hospital. I can't attend every meeting at church or committee. And this is a, a, a church which recognizes that. And so lots of people are involved in serving in multiple ways. So the elders in particular are very clear that my job amongst one is to focus on the ministry of the word of God and prayer. And I'm very grateful to be in a church that acknowledges that. Briefly, of course, it is, it is the, the ministry of, of prayer and the word. So verse 4, the apostles give their attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. And for those of us in particular involved in that, a reminder that you, you just don't want to separate those two out. They're not meant to be separated out. A, a ministry of the word without prayer is ineffective. It's not meant to go that way. Just whatever things in your mind go together, fish and chips and bread and butter, that's word and prayer, they go together. My grandmother used to say, eccentrically, kissing a man without a moustache is like eating chips without salt and vinegar. (laughs) I'm sure there's wisdom in there somewhere. (laughs) That's a slightly subjective view, I guess. But uh, she's saying, you just just don't want to do that. Those two things are meant to always go together. And the ministry of prayer and teaching the word of God are always meant to go together. You don't want to separate those two out. You need them both. And studying the scriptures, reflecting upon them, applying them on a Sunday morning takes effort. And of course, not just a Sunday. When you look at the ministry that takes place, perhaps particularly Paul's ministry in Acts chapter 20, is public teaching of the word of God and from house to house, in small groups and in individuals, all those things. But the apostles say, we need to concentrate on that. Now, of course, you could get lazy ministers or slightly daft ministers who will spend five days cultivating and and polishing and manicuring the the best sermon they possibly can, and they spend 40 hours on it and proclaim it to five people, uh, and that will be a very stupid use of their time. But for most or many ministers, the threat is distraction. And so I'm grateful that here I'm asked to prioritize prayer in the ministry of the word. And it is evident to anyone that there are others much better equipped for the work of administration. Uh, many here uh, who in your secular jobs who are much better at strategy and structures than I'm ever going to be because you've been trained by your uh, employers to be good at that. And we all need one another because there are two ways to serve here. Don't distract those who should be doing it from the ministry of word and prayer. But this ministry of caring for the, for the widows, that has to happen. So others need to be involved in that. Two different ways of serving. Two problems. Division in the church, distraction for the apostles. Two ways to serve. And one outcome. Verses 5 to 7. This proposal pleased the whole group, presumably a show of hands, or a content, not content, uh, I don't think they voted on 5,000 people, but anyway. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose... Uh, Stephen then, we say he goes on to be the first Christian martyr in chapter 7. So he doesn't do this 
for the rest of his life. It's for a season. Uh, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Again, you know, this is people who are well qualified. Uh, also, Philip, uh, chapter 8, he uh, evangelizes the uh, Ethiopian eunuch uh, and these others, very well pronounced earlier. And uh, these men presented the apostles. They were publicly recognized, verse 6. And so the word of God spread. And this is how Luke finishes chapter 1. Persecution has not stopped the spreading of the word of God. Corruption has not spread stop the spreading of the word of God, and nor does distraction. The apostles say the ministry of the word must not be distracted. It's what makes the church grow. The only reason they've got widows to look after and care for is because the word has been proclaimed. So, I mean, it's an obvious... I mean, I think we all get this, but... Um, uh, I guess by way of correspondence, in any given day, there are all sorts of things we need to achieve, all of us. Most of us need to, I don't know, go to work and, and pick up the kids if we've got them from this or that and make X number of phone calls and, and email that person and go online and pay those bills. We all need to do all these things. But if we neglect to eat any food, after a while we conk out and nothing gets done. All the necessary work. And it's all necessary, going to work, paying bills. They all need to happen, but neglect food and you're, well, you're going to conk out. And of course, by comparison, in any church, there are lots of things to happen and take place. All sorts of needs of the members here. All sorts of needs that admin gets done efficiently. But without someone or people serving up a regular diet of the word of God, the church conks out. Stops to be a church. No one becomes a disciple. No one grows in discipleship. So you have to have this taking place. Two problems, two ways to serve. One outcome, the word of God spread and the number of disciples increased rapidly. Because the apostles, they prioritized their task of the ministry of the word. Let me, um, let me push this just directly here. So three little words for us here. Uh, this morning at Christchurch Mayfair. A risk, a question, a servant. Okay, just those three. First, a risk. A church such as ours, I think there is a little bit of a risk that we all leave this sort of service, caring for those who are a bit short of money and, and the, the widows, we leave that to someone else. At a church such as ours in central London, where most people are working very long hours in their jobs, with a commute, uh, and are tired, and there's not a lot of spare capacity. Not many who are employed at this church work eight hours a day, nine to five, and get home by ten past five, and have evenings vacant to do whatever they desire. It's just, that's just not the way many cities work, and certainly not London. And so very wisely, very sensibly, city centre churches, and we're no exception, have larger staff teams than many churches would have, certainly larger than many rural churches would have. That is sensible, because stuff happens that way and nothing gets done. The danger or the risk is, well, we just think someone sorts it out. Uh, who does X at church? Oh, I don't know, someone else sorts it out. Uh, if someone's sort of cash... At church, you know, so how does that get sorted out? Well, I don't know, someone else sorts it out. There's a group over there sorts it out. Uh, oh, right. Um, 
Church is messy at the end. Who sorts that out? I don't know. Someone else sorts it out. Who clears up my rubbish? Someone else sorts it out. Who sorts out the chairs? Someone else sorts it out. Uh, and that can be the culture. There's a risk of that. We can become slightly over, uh, over-specialized and think, well, I'm not on a rotor for picking up coffee cups, so I won't do it. I'm not on a rotor for shutting a door to stop a child running out. I won't do it. Silly examples. But it's just, it's just a risk at a church such as ours. It all becomes a little bit overly professionalized, and we don't just generally serve. That could be unhealthy for us. That's just a little risk, I'd say. That's a risk. A question. A question. I sometimes get asked a question. There's a second little thing to say for us here. Sometimes, uh, particularly those who are relatively new or have been here just a year or something, will say, uh, compared to other churches I've been to, you sort of seem to bang on quite a lot about getting young people out of their secular jobs and sending them into to full-time ministry. Why, you know, don't you want Christians in the secular workplace? Why do you always bang on getting people to quit their secular jobs and, and, and go into paid or, or, or full-time ministry? Why, why that? That's a reasonable question. And here's the answer, in part. Because the UK and the wider world, but certainly the UK needs people set apart for prayer and the ministry of the word. And actually there aren't huge numbers of churches doing it. It's, oh, I know lots of churches doing it. Yeah, yeah and, and once you've got to five, how, well, then how do you do? There aren't huge numbers nationally. And so at a church such as ours, there are plenty of particularly young people with the ability to train as ministers of the word and prayer. And the opportunity, they've not picked up loads of commitments which make it a bit more complicated to do so. And the desire amongst many. And if not, we want to encourage that desire. But there's a national shortage of ministers. There just aren't enough. And so there are churches and pulpits where there's no one to teach them. And so we think we can do something about that. And so, yeah, we invest plenty of staff time and money in it. So this afternoon, again, we'll have a tea, whatever, at four o'clock. I don't know when it is. I should find out. Anyway, but um, later this afternoon, before the evening service, a tea. And we, in one sense, I want everyone under the age of, I don't know, 35, that's arbitrary, 40, 50, whatever. I want everyone to consider, is this what I should be doing? Because there's a shortage nationally. Not for everyone, of course. But to work out it's the right thing for you, for them. Yeah, lots of time, money spent on that. There's a risk we could become lazy and leave service to others. A question, why, why try and push so many people into this? Because not many churches are doing it or have the young people who could do it. Uh, thirdly, here's my last comment, then we're done. A word of uh, the servant. This word that gets used then, ministry of the word, waiting on tables, service. It's the same word, diakoneia. It is the same word that Jesus uses of himself. Multiple times, but classically when he says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and supremely to do so by giving his life as a ransom for many. 
And when he tells his disciples that, he's saying to them, look, greatness in the kingdom of God comes from service. Uh, And you and I, we need to serve in our different ways so that the number of disciples increases. But we need to see Jesus' priority for himself. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And not primarily by teaching, and not primarily by healing, but fundamentally by dying to give his life as a ransom for many, to save them for eternity. That was Jesus' priority in his ministry. And therefore, that's why he would say to us, that's why the word of God needs to be spread. The message that I have died as a ransom to save people from hell, for heaven, forever, that is what the church must fundamentally be about. Oh, and lots of other things have to happen as well. But, but that is the priority. That's why I've come. So don't get distracted from that. That's what people need to know about Jesus. And that's what needs to be central to any church life. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to do so by giving his life as a ransom for you and for me. And we mustn't get distracted from that. Let's pray together. Our Father, compared to some of the extraordinary, miraculous, stunning events in the book of Acts, this seems a little prosaic and uh, ordinary Uh, And yet, Father, perhaps this is the greatest danger for us, that we can get distracted by good things and neglect the most important thing, to tell people of the saving work of Jesus Christ. So we pray uh, for us as a church. We thank you for the many different ways in which people serve, that some are set aside for the the teaching of the word and for prayer, and that's recognized as valuable and hard work and service and labor. And many others serve in different ways. But Father, would we all be doing this so that the word of God spreads and the number of disciples grows? And we pray it for the honor of your name. Amen.